Addy. Matthew chapter 22 is where we're at. You'll notice we're, we're picking up the speed. Uh, I wanted to get through Matthew in our lifetime, and so we're going to have to go a little faster than I've been going. We've been at it about a year and a half already. And so there's three parables here in 21 and 22 that essentially have the same purpose. Okay, they're not the same parable. They, they're, they're very different parables, but they have the same purpose in regards to the rejection of the gospel by the Jews and by others. And so I picked the one that was actually most, I guess, exciting to me. And so that's the one in Matthew 22. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Matthew 22 verses 1 through 14. If you'd like to stand, we do that in this service often in reading the Word of God together. So Matthew 22 And I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. They paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Father in heaven, we ask for your Holy Spirit to do that same work in us, Father, that the team saw you do in in Thailand, God, that you would just quicken our minds and our hearts to to see your glory, God, to be be ravished by your, your incredible generosity in the gospel. God, help us to see the gospel as we ought to see it. God, I pray that those who need to respond to the invitation today to come, Come to the banquet, God, that they would come, that they would come to you, that they would repent of sin, that they would put their faith in you. God, that the beauty of the gospel would be theirs. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so once again, Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of heaven, okay? Now, how many times have we seen that phrase so far in the book of Matthew, right? Jesus will say the kingdom of heaven is like, okay? So, so a lot of Matthew is Jesus describing the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, that, that is so because Jesus is the king, right? He is the long-awaited king. He's the one that in 2 Samuel, when God was talking to David, and he said, David, there's going to be one from your family who's going to be born, and he is going to reign on your throne forever and ever. That's the one that all of Israel had been waiting for. And now with Jesus, he's here. Okay. The king is here. That's kind of the gospel of Matthew. The king is here and the king is here and he's, he's demonstrating what his kingdom is like, right? If you go through our God story project, you know that, that uh, a lot of times we, we define Jesus' earthly ministry as his authority over death and demons and disease and disasters and debts. It's Jesus kind of showing his reign, okay, 
over the world, all right? And so Jesus is announcing his kingdom. He's announcing that he's here. And now in this parable, he is teaching us, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like, okay? Here, here, here's what it's like. Here's what it's like for the gospel to go out into the world, okay? So that's the context of this passage. Now, let's kind of walk through the parable, okay? So first of all, you have a king who is throwing a wedding feast for his son. Now, when you see king, don't, don't think governor, don't think mayor, don't think president, okay? I, I know those are the closest things that we might have to a king, but they really aren't like a king, right? Uh, a king in Jesus' day was someone who had absolute power, absolute authority. He was sovereign. He ruled. He reigned. Your life was in his hands. If the king said, you're dead, you were dead. If he said, you're out, you're out. And the king had absolute reign and authority, okay? So there is a king and he's throwing a wedding feast for his son. In other words, he's going to honor his son. He's, he's going to honor his son. Now, this would have been the event of a lifetime. Weddings are a pretty big deal in our culture. Um, sometimes, sometimes not. Um, for some people, they are. But in Jesus' day, they, they were a huge event, okay? They were the event of the year. In fact, and still in Mediterranean culture, we were in North Africa um, this last year, and we were talking to a group of young, uh, kind of college age, 20s, um, late 20s uh, folks, and, and I asked them, I said, you know, none of you are married, how come none of you are married? And they said, it's too expensive. And I was like, well, you know, can't you just get married? And they're like, no, no, no. In our culture, you know, when you get married, you know, you've, you've got you to have this much money saved up because you're, you're going to have this feast and there's going to be multiple meals and you're going to invite, you know, the whole village and, and it's expected. It's expected that that's what you do when you get married. And it was very much like Jesus' day. Weddings were a huge deal in Jesus' day. But, but, even though weddings were a huge deal, like a normal wedding in a village might last a week. Relatives might come in and stay a week and feed everybody. But can you imagine the wedding of the son of the king? This would have been more food and more drink and more lavish decorations and entertainment and luxury than you can imagine. And all this would have been to honor the son. And guys, I can't tell you how how. Just excited I am that that is a picture of the gospel, okay? That, that when God decides he's going to give us a picture of, of what is it like to honor his son, he's like, what it's like to honor my son is I'm going to draw you guys into the party of the century, okay? That, that's, that's, that's the picture of the gospel. I love that. I love that the picture of the gospel is a wedding feast. It's this magnifying the joy of people in Jesus. I love that. I love that Jesus is describing to us the joy and satisfaction and lavish blessings that will be enjoyed by those who are joined by faith to him. I love it that when Jesus talks about the gospel, he talks about a feast. Isn't that cool? But not just a feast. You know, think back to our time in Matthew. You're like, well, you're taking too long. We can't remember that long, right? But do you think? Do you remember back to Matthew 13? There's a whole series of parables where it said the kingdom of heaven is like, right? Let me give you a couple of my favorites. Okay, verse 44 in Matthew 13 was the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Remember? Remember the guy's walking along in the field. He stumbles upon a treasure. He uncovers it. He opens up, and it is beyond his, his imagination, right? It is so much wealth, he can't even get his head around it. He immediately covers it up, and he hides it, and he runs back to town, and he puts a for sale sign on everything. Why? Because in his joy, he sells it all to buy that field so he can have that treasure. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom's like. The kingdom is like 
treasure that's worth giving everything for. And then the next verse, verse 45, he said, it's the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl merchant, you know, who he, his business is pearls and he has a pearl store and a pearl factory. And, and one day he comes across a, across a pearl of such great price. I, I picture it like bowling ball size, don't you? I mean, that's kind of what I picture, you know, and it's so incredible. It's so perfect. It's so valuable that he sells all of his other pearls, his entire factory, his entire, all of his store to buy that one. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And now in this passage, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a lavish feast. Are you getting the message here? Are you getting it? Like this is what the gospel is. It is so good. Some of you may have grown up thinking that this was a book of rules. I hate that that's what people think the Bible is. I hate that that's what people think Christianity is. A lot of, for a lot of folks, Christianity is, hey, it's a bunch of rules, man. Like you got to sit in your seat and you got to have your feet on the floor and you got to have your hands on your desk and you got to not twiddle your thumbs and you got to look straight ahead. And if you don't do that, God's going to crush you. Man, you've not read the story, okay? You have not read the story. You've not listened to Jesus. When Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, he describes treasure. He describes pearls of great price. And he describes a wedding feast for the king and his son in which everybody's invited. That, that's the gospel. Man, I want you to have that. And you're like, well, you know, maybe that's just Jesus. Just Jesus, wouldn't that be enough? But, you know, does the rest of the Bible say that? The rest of the Bible screams that. You know, how about 1 Peter 1? Peter describes the Christian life as joy inexpressible, filled with glory, as an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. Well, how about the Old Testament? Is there any of this in the Old Testament? It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Let me read you my favorite one. I say my favorite one all the time, don't you? Like, how can I have that many favorites? It's like your kids. They're all your favorite, right? So Psalm 36, 7, listen to this. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Verse 8, they feast. Ah, some of you Baptists love that word, and you should love it, okay? It is there. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, and your light we see light. Man, you drink from the river of his delights. Can you imagine a river, right? A flowing, deep, wide river flowing with the delights of God, and we're just drinking it up, and it's never ending. That's the picture the psalmist gives us of what it's like to be the people of God. So when you think of the kingdom of God, I want you to think of these things. It's, it's what Jesus says. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what Jesus and the the prophets and the apostles and the Christians for 2,000 years have been preaching to us. It come to the feast, the feast that is the gospel. Now you're asking me, you're going to say, well, is this just all later or is it now? It is both now and later, okay? It begins today. If you will come to Jesus today, like if you come to the feast, if you, if you respond to the invitation today, then it starts now. You are forgiven of your sins. That's feasting, all right? You have freedom from sin. You have freedom from death, freedom from the grave. You have hope for eternal life. You have a conquering of your fear. You're being sanctified. You're being made like Jesus. You, you're becoming less and less like you and more and more like Jesus. You're indwelt with the Spirit of God, giving you power to become like Christ, to follow Jesus. And all of that flows into what is ahead for you and I if you're in the kingdom, which is the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of our bodies to live forever with Christ in his kingdom in blazing glory that's now and forevermore okay and it's a feast now back to the parable so the king lavish feast to honor his son he invites them to come now at this point in the story I really believe what Jesus says next would have made people gasp I, th I think they would have turned around and whispered to each other they wouldn't be able to believe it, it says the 
The king had a wedding feast for his son, and he sent the servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Look at the end of verse 3. But they would not come. They wouldn't come. We're just not coming. Now, I believe that this is targeted right at the Jews. If we had a chance to go back to 21 and 22, we'd see that this whole conversation starts when, when the, the religious leaders challenge Jesus, and what authority do you do these things? And then he tells these three parables, and all three parables target their rejection of the Messiah. These, these religious Jews, these, these, this Jewish nation, they'd already been invited to the wedding feast. The whole Old Testament is pointing them to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the coming King, all the prophecies, the gospel pictures, and now he's here, and the Father's ready to honor his son, and they won't, they won't come. So it's targeted at the Jews, but listen, it's for us too. If you're here this morning and you're invited to the feast and you just won't come, now, now let's be clear. Why wouldn't you come? Now, now if, you're, if, you're, if you're asked to throw a feast, that's different, isn't it? Anybody ask you to like do a baby shower or a wedding shower or, hey, would you have grandma's 90th birthday in your living room? You know, you ever get asked to do that? And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. Then you're thinking, oh, man, you know, all that food and uh, nobody's going to help and we have to get the decorations and da, 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 da. Okay, no, no, not here. Not here. Do do you notice the parable? It's, It's very specific. The king is providing everything. He's providing everything. Like, like he says, my fattened calves are killed, my oxen, it's all ready. All you're asked to do is come. My friends, in the gospel, you're not asked to get yourself right. I'm really glad because you can't. You're not asked to muster up your own righteousness. I'm really glad because you can't. You know what you're asked to do? You're asked to receive what God has prepared for you. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, Through his perfect life and through his sacrificial death and through his resurrection, he has provided for you. He's provided for you forgiveness. He's provided for you justification. He's provided for you adoption and an eternal inheritance through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus has provided everything just like in the parable. All is provided, but they simply won't come. Now, this is an insult. Beyond an insult, this is treason, okay? This is not like you can't make your aunt and uncle's 40th wedding anniversary because you got a soccer tournament, okay, and you're going to have to you know, be excused. This is not like, hey, we're not going to make it to Grandma's 80th because i got to work, and, hey, we'll drop by our house next week. This is not like I don't want to go to my 20th anniversary uh, or my 20th uh, reunion, high school reunion. I just don't want to see any of those people. It, it's not like any of those, okay? Th- this is treason. This is the unthinkable dishonor when, when, when the king is honoring his son, when God is honoring his son by drawing you into his joy and you simply won't come now notice what happens next this is how you know god is so merciful verse four he he sends out other servants okay it's almost like he said well maybe the first group didn't express my invitation well you know maybe they spoke with a lisp maybe 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 they couldn't be understood maybe they had a bad demeanor maybe maybe they presented themselves badly so i'm gonna send a whole another group of servants so it says in verse four he sent out other servants and, and, and they they tell them they emphasize the benefits of the of the feast 
Okay, in verse 4 it says, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. He has slaughtered herds of animals here. This is T-bone steak. This is ribeyes. This is not cheese and crackers and, and, and chips, okay? He has slaughtered his herds to have this feast. He says, tell them it's all ready. Tell them to come. And then look at verse 5. They paid no attention. Went off onto his farm and went to his business. Okay, now they paid no attention. What does that mean? It means a couple things here, okay? So, number one, they, they were indifferent, okay? They were indifferent. Maybe we could express it like this they, they did not care. It was not a big deal. The king is not a big deal. His son is not a big deal, okay? The invitation was much like a, a telemarketer selling timeshares or a street vendor peddling tourist trinkets. They're just not interested. Okay, verse 5, very clearly. It says, they paid no attention. They're not interested. I want to ask you a very serious question. Are you interested in the things of God? I want you to consider that. You know what I really wanted to know? I, I, I wanted to take a survey about our memory work for last week. So on, on, on Sunday, we had a longer verse, Hebrews 1.3. And, and I wondered if a lot of people would skip it, number one, because it's long, and number two, because it's all about Jesus. You know what I found is that people like to memorize verses about them and about promises and about commands more than they do just a description of Jesus. And so I, I was kind of wondering how interested people would be in memorizing Hebrews 1.3. I wondered how, how, how much it would captivate your attention. Are you interested just in Jesus? You know, Hebrews 1 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? If you don't know what that means, you ought to want to know. What does it mean when it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God? He is the exact imprint of His nature. It says the next phrase, He upholds the universe. By the word of his power, he holds every atom together by his power, by the expression of his power. And then it says, after making purification for sins, your sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I just wondered, are, are you interested in Jesus? These guys weren't. They're just not interested. Are, are, are you interested in, in, in justification? Are you interested in how can I be justified before God? I want to know that. Are you interested in that? Are you interested in the cross? What did Jesus do for me? How can all my failures and all my sins and all my, my wretchedness, how can that be atoned for? Are you interested in the cross? Are you interested in sanctification? Are you interested in the forgiveness of sin? Are you interested in power over sin and the love of God for your soul? Are you interested in the mission of God to the nations? Are you interested or just not? Or may... Maybe simply, maybe just too busy. Do, do you notice? Let's read verse 5 again. And they paid no attention, and they went off one to his farm and another to his business. You see, they, they just don't, they don't have time for spiritual things. They got other things to do. We got to go check the wheat. We got we to go check out some real estate. We got to go look at our business venture. We got to clean out the garage. Because we all know what happens if you don't clean the garage. 
Nothing happens. But there are times given to other things. You know what the Bible warns us about over and over again? I don't know if you've ever put all these together in a line. There's a whole bunch of them. I'm not even have time to go over them. But the Bible warns us about people who have no time for spiritual things. Just like, I don't have time for that. Let me give you some of the highlights. Luke chapter 12 is uh, what we call the parable of the rich fool. I don't know who named it that, but, um, but it's the parable of, of the rich fool. And it's about this guy who God blesses him so much. This is abundant blessing. And, and, and instead of like that turning his attention to God, instead of that turning his attention to say, God, you know what? Maybe I should know who you are. Maybe I should know what you've done. Maybe I should know how I can be right with you. God, maybe I should know how, how, I, can, how I can be a part of your feast. Instead of doing that, all of his tension is built on himself. It's just, how do I build bigger barns? How, how do I store more of my stuff? How do I get more stuff? And, and at the end of that parable, it says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you've made ample goods. This is what he says to himself. Laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but he's not rich toward God. There's a parallel passage in Luke 14. A lot of people don't believe it's the same parable. I actually don't believe it's the same parable as the one we're reading in, in Matthew 22, but I think they're incredibly similar, and I think they have the same point. And in that one, there's this great banquet, and the king is invited again. He's invited us in. He's invited us into this banquet, okay? And, and, and the, people, the people, instead of just paying no attention, they begin to make excuses, okay? Let me, let me read those excuses to you, okay? Let me find it first. Wrong page. There we go. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent to his servant to, to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Verse 18, but they all like began to make excuses. By the way, do you know what an excuse is? So anytime you say like, well, I couldn't do that because of this, it just simply reveals your priorities. That, that's all it does. I mean, I'm not saying they're not valid sometimes, but, but excuses always reveal this is what I value, okay? So, so notice the excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it, Okay? So the first guy is like, I, I can't come to the feast. I can't, I can't come because I got this thing I got to do. I've already bought this field. He's already bought it. It's his. He owns it. But what he got to do, he's got to go out there and dream about it, right? He's got to go walk around on it. He's got to go dream about what he's going to do. He's got to dream about the cattle he's going to put on, the little ranch home he's going to put on, the fence he's going to put up. He, he's, he's, got, he's got things to do there. Next guy, verse 10. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. Not verse 10, verse 19. And I go to examine them. They bought this oxen. He's, he's got to go, go to the stock show. He's got to look at his oxen. How about this one? Verse 20. Another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I can't come. Because we all know that young brides hate lavish royal parties, right? Like, like there's no way. He's just married. I mean, how could he take? I mean, it's just like if you got married and then you get this invitation to the royal wedding in Britain, all expenses paid, you're going to be one of the guests at Westminster Abbey and be a part of all the festivities. And you're like, honey, you know, we just got married, but I'm sure you don't want to go that, right? You'd rather stay home here and check cattle with me and, and cook breakfast for me in the morning, right? I mean, that, you see what excuses are? They're just that. They reveal what we value. Now, the next group of folks we're going to look at, they're openly hostile to the king and his son and his servants. This group isn't openly hostile. They're just, eh, I don't got time for that. I'm not interested in that. It's not a priority. But what I want you to see is, is that that actually is hostility. 
that actually is rebellion. Okay? For you, for God to lavishly invite you into the gospel to provide everything for you to be his and for you to be like, I don't have time for that. I'm not interested. Maybe later. That is, that is hostility to God. Let me prove that to you. I want you to imagine that um, your wife is in charge of Christmas dinner, okay? All the family's coming in, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, all the kids are coming to your house, and your wife has been cooking. You know how wives get, right? You've been cooking for a week, you know? She's been cleaning the house. She's got new center places. you got tea. You know, it's all spread out. She got up at 5 in the morning on Christmas Day in order to get this thing all ready. And finally, all the relatives are here, and it's ready. Grandpa's going to pray. We're going to have the family prayer. Where, where's the kids? And, oh, Junior's missing. And so you go back in his room, and there he is on his little video game, you know? And you say, hey, hey Junior, you know, it's time, it's time for dinner. Your mother has prepared it all. The feast, the family's here. We're going to celebrate. You know, cry, come, come to the feast. Doesn't even answer you. It's paying no attention to you. Okay, now at this point, you, you take the controller and you pull his little face over and you say, it's, it's time. Your mama has prepared all this food and it's time for you to go to the feast. And he looks right up at you and he says, I'm not interested in eating with you guys. I'll grab me something later. Can I have my controller back? I don't know your style of parenting. Lots of people are different, okay? I don't know. You, you, might, you might look at that little junior and say, aren't you the precious thing ever? You just get whatever you want, okay? That's not what I would do, okay? I'd probably take that video machine. Now, you ready to come to the feast? I, I, however you parent is fine. I mean, that just, I'm just telling you what I would do. You know why? Because you just disrespected your mama and you disrespected your family. How much more when you got no time for the king? You got no time for these memory verses. Why do you give me all these? I got no time. Do you guys not go to fast food? I memorize all of mine, literally, in the line at the fast food. I know I eat a lot more fast food than people. I know that, but... Like going to Sonic to get a pop. You always got a line there. Pull it out. You got time? So the king offers a lavish feast. You got some that pay no attention. You got some that have got no time. And then look at this weird thing. Verse 6. The rest, you got these other folks, they seized the servants. Okay, the, the servants are the messengers who went out to invite people to the feast. They seize the servants, and they treat them shamefully, and they kill them. Is that not crazy? The king invites, sends out his servants to invite you into a lavish feast, and they, they kill the servants. You're like, that's crazy talk. That would never happen. Happens all the time. It's been happening for 2,000 years. It's been happening ever since God commissioned his church to go and rose from the dead and ascended into the heavens. It's happened among our brothers in India. Guys, I've shaken their hands and they've gone into a village with the good news of the gospel saying, you can come. God will forgive you of your sins. 
God will make you righteous. He will justify you and adopt you into his family. And you can live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And they plunge a knife into his chest and kill him. That's exactly what happens. Why would they do that? Because they hate the king. They refuse to honor his son. They want to honor something else. People all over the world are honoring something. You're honoring some God. You're honoring yourself. You're honoring your money. You're honoring power or sex or possessions or whatever you want to celebrate. But you won't honor the king. Verse 7. This is kind of the response we would expect from the king. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, now you may see a picture of the wrath of God in there. And I think totally, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, I, I don't think that's hell yet, okay? I think the picture of hell comes a little later, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's absolutely the wrath of God. My personal opinion is that actually Jesus is pointing to the fact that Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. Jerusalem would be leveled in AD 70, and Jesus would, would prophesy about that numerous times in the gospel. Not just here, but over and over again. He would talk about how this city's going to be destroyed. And, and I think that's what he's talking about. That's just my own opinion, but it fits either way. If you want to think it's just the wrath of God, but we'll, we'll talk about the wrath of God in a second. Now, notice what happens next, verse 8. Okay, verse eight, he said, then he said to his servants, okay, so he gathers his servants again. This is the third time. And he says, okay, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. And then I love this. This is so cool. He tells his servants, I want you to go. Go, therefore, to the main roads. What are the main roads? That's where all the people are. Go, go to Ninth in Oklahoma. Go, go, go to Meridian. Go to, go to Oklahoma City. Go to, go to Bangkok. Go to, go to Madagascar. Go to Tokyo. Go to Hyderabad. Go to Mumbai. Go where the people are. And he says, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. I love that. Both, not, not just the good ones, not just the beautiful ones, so that the wedding hall might be full of guests, my friends. This is the great commission. This, this, this is Jesus saying, I want you to go out and I want you to invite them all. This is Matthew 28, 18, where he told his servants, us, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is Acts 1, 8, where Jesus said, go. he said, I'm about to ascend to heaven. I'm gonna give you power and you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the gospel to the nations. This is the heart of our king to fill his banquet with the unworthy and the undeserving and the unexpected. Man, I love that. I don't know who you would invite if you were the king, but I imagine most folks would invite people who are like us, who have it all together, people who are popular, people who are known, people who are beautiful. But man, I love God's heart here in Luke 14 in the parallel passage in verse 21, 24. It says, the master tells the servants, go to the streets and go to the lanes and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and go to the highways and go to the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. Everyone is invited. That's the gospel. Everyone is invited. You don't have to be cleaned up. You don't have to be moral. You don't have to be a good person. There are no good people. We've all sinned. We're all broken. But you are invited into the gospel. You are invited to the king, to the feast of the king. One of the coolest pictures of evangelism and missions in the Bible. Folks, this is what we're doing. How, how, how do you think about sharing Jesus with people. Like, how is that in your mind? I'm telling you, I've been with folks when they had an opportunity to share, and, and it was almost like for them, sharing Jesus was like sharing stale bread, you know? It's kind of like, 
Hey, if you want some bread, you can, it's not very good. I know you probably don't want it, do you? Never mind. And that is not the picture of evangelism. The picture of evangelism is, is a feast that is beyond your imagination. And we get to go and tell everybody, you can come. Come. You're poor, you can come. You're crippled, you can come. You're blind, you can come. You got a bad, you got a bad past, you can come. come. Come to the feast. Come to the feast. Just a few chapters ago, Jesus was telling us that if anybody would come after me, remember this is our first memory verse? If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And you're like, well, man, that, that sounds pretty hard. Yeah, a lot of times it is hard. You, you, know, you know what creates people who will follow Jesus no matter the, the cost? They believe in this gospel. They believe in this feast. They believe that this is what we're being called into. They believe in, in the beauty and the lavishness of what God is bringing us into. And it is so good that they are people who will suffer whatever the cost is in order to follow him. Because this is what is coming. Now, I want, you to, I want you to look at the last picture, okay? There's one more picture here. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man. So he's looking at all the guests, and there's this, there's this guy here, and he's got no wedding garment on. And he says to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, you, you're not, you're not going to get this picture unless you understand that the king provided the garments. Okay? That, was, that was something that was done lavishly in, in, in weddings among the king, where the king would actually provide the clothes. And, and obviously that was the case in here because he sends them out to the highways and the hedges and the byways, and, and he just brings them in, right? It's ready. Like, you come now. He gets people out of every, every walk of life, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the poor, and he says, you come now. He brings them in now. They wouldn't have had those clothes. They wouldn't have. And so the king provides them. But this guy, this guy does it his own way. He doesn't receive what the king has provided. There's this beautiful doctrine in the Christian faith. It's called imputed righteousness, okay? Now you're thinking, imputed, can't we find a better word for that? Maybe, but I don't want to. Like, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a good word. So, some words are just like used really in Christian circles. I like to kind of keep them that way. It's one of the reasons in the God story we kept incarnation, you know? We, we could have we called this Jesus birth or whatever, but we wanted our kids to know what incarnation means. We wanted them to know that it means God put on human flesh, okay? Well, I want you to know that imputed righteousness means God puts righteousness in your account, okay? That's what that means. God, God gives you the wedding garment. He clothes you with his own righteousness, right? You see the beauty of that? He clothes you with his own righteousness. Isaiah 61, 10, it's coming true where God says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord and my soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I want you to see that when God invites you to the feast, when you come, when you come by faith, you are clothed with his righteousness. Now, you're wanting to see this in other places in the Bible, aren't you? Okay, all right, you convince me. I'll show you, all right? So Romans chapter 4, ready? There's a whole bunch of good ones here, okay? Romans 4, 2, uh, Paul's talking about justification by faith. He's talking about salvation. He's saying it's always been by faith. It's always God's righteousness, all right? So here's what he says about Abraham. He says in Romans 4, 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. 
but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham just received the gospel invitation. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then when Paul is talking to the Galatian Christians, he says, guys, I need you to know that that it's not by the law. It's not by your works. You only are righteous through Jesus' righteousness. And he goes back to Abraham again in verse 6 and says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, And then Paul, when Paul's talking about his own testimony in Philippians chapter 3, and he talks about how he had tried to work for his salvation, and he'd he'd been so proud of his heritage and his Jewishness and his obedience to the law. And then he said, all that is is dung to me. All that is trash to me. All that is rubbish to me. And then he says in verse 9, that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. My friends, when you respond to the gospel banquet, God clothes you with a wedding garment. He clothes you, he covers you with his own righteousness in his son. Whenever you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you're joined to him and his righteousness is put in your account. Your sin is placed on him, and you become righteous. Now, that imputed righteousness, that's what that is, put in our account. That, you know what that, that does inside of you? It produces a practical righteousness, okay? So Jesus' righteousness inside of you, that wedding garment that you're covered with, you know what that produces? That produces a changed life. That produces a transformed life. So, so as you become a Christian, you're clothed in Christ's righteousness, and now you begin to be convicted of your sin. Now you begin to be, to, to be changed in, in the way you love and the way you want and the way you live and, and, and how you think, and you begin, to, you begin to bear fruit. That's what we call that in, in the Bible. It's bearing fruit. You begin to be visibly transformed. Christ's righteousness in your account begins to come out of you in practical righteousness. And so the one that does not have practical righteousness, you may have responded to the invitation, but you don't belong in the banquet. Jesus himself describes what's going to happen on Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 7. Remember this, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, hey, I responded. Not everybody who says, hey, I'm in the gospel. No. Verse 22, Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of darkness, of lawlessness. So you got one group that said, I'm not interested. Ah, It's busy. Hey, thanks for the invite, God. Thanks for sending your son to die, but man, I got other things that I got to do. I got to check out my field. I got a thriving business. I got family I got to take care of. I am too busy for spiritual things. You got another group, actually more honest. We hate the king. We hate the son. We will not honor you, and we will mistreat when you try to tell us about the invitation. And then you got another group who said, "I'll, I'll come. I'll come. Yep. But I'll come my own way. 
I, I, I'll, come, I'll come with my own works. I'll come by the law. I'll be good enough. I, I, I don't need what you have, Jesus. I, I can make it on my own. I got my own deal with God. How many times have you heard people say that? I got my own deal with God. None of those will be in the feast of the king. But rather, I think here's the picture of hell. Verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That, that phrase, outer darkness, man, it, does hell bother you? I hope it does. I can't imagine why, how it could not. But when I, when I hear the phrase outer darkness, and, and I think about a place where, where people will live forever with no light. And I compare that to the feast that is planned for those who believe. Listen to how John describes Revelation or describes heaven in Revelation 21. This is so good. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty. He's describing the, the city of God where the saints will be. It says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Did you know that about heaven? There won't be any, there won't be any night in heaven. Why? Because we don't need sun, moon, or stars. Jesus is the blazing light of glory in heaven, and there will never cease to be him, okay? So there is no night. So when I, when I think about those who respond to this invitation in faith and repentance, those who say, I will deny myself, and I will take up my cross, and I'll follow, those are the ones who will live in light, in the glory of the Father, in the feast of the King forevermore. But those who are too busy, those who are preoccupied, those who, who are just not interested, those who are in opposition, those who say, I'll do it my way, they will live in outer darkness. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is absolutely described as a place of conscious torment. But it's also described as a place of eternal regret. I think that's the gnashing of teeth. I actually have a hard time getting my head around those folks who will realize it's over for me. There is no more opportunity forever. But that's not the case for you. And do you hear that? That is... You can come. You hear me? You can come. You, you're invited. You can come to the feast. God has provided. He has provided everything to make you righteous. He's provided everything for you to live with Him in glory. He's provided a wedding garment of righteousness that he will put on you if you will only believe. I'm inviting you. Maybe you've never been invited before. 
Maybe you've been invited a thousand times, and if you have, that's what scares me. It scares me that you would not pay attention over and over again. You're invited to come. Come to Jesus. Come and be saved. Come and turn from your sin. Come and put your faith in him. Come to the banquet. He'll have you. Father, I just ask that you would do the work that only your spirit can do. God, I I pray, Father, it says at the end of this passage, many are called and few are chosen. I know the gospel will go out to many. The invite will go out to many, but so many will just, they will turn away from it. And I pray, Father, that that would not be the case today. I pray, Father, that that your spirit would do that, that enlightening, that work of bringing to life, that work of, calling and responding in hearts. God, that you would bring people today. God, invite them to your feast. Call them in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? You respond to the Lord, okay?